Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, if you would. Luke chapter 19. This entire week, we're focusing on Holy Week, or as some might call it, Passion Week. Today on Palm Sunday, we're taking a special look at the triumphal entry. Our main text is Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. As we head into Holy Week, where we'll be reminded of Jesus' last week of his earthly life and ministry leading up to his crucifixion and burial and resurrection, today we're going to see the significance of Palm Sunday and why we celebrate it. See, Jesus' triumphal entry on Palm Sunday was a crucial and critically significant day, prophetically, in his life and ministry, as it was the first time really in his public earthly ministry where he openly accepted public recognition as Messiah and King. And while there's going to be a lot of rejoicing taking place on this specific day from crowds of people who were excited about Jesus, this was also a tragic and sorrowful day as we'll see Jesus weeping and broken over the state of the Jewish people as many were completely blind to what he was fulfilling on this specific day in history. And so with that in mind, let's begin by reading Luke 19, verses 28 through 36. Beginning in verse 28, this is coming on the heels of Jesus having this teaching after interacting with this man, Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector. We're told in verse 28, when he had said this, He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they waved their hands in front of the man's face and said, No, Jedi mind trick. Just kidding. I feel like every time I teach this, I have to say it because it's just in my mind, that's where it, that's where it goes. They didn't wave their hand in front of their face. That didn't happen. They said, verse 34, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. What we see in these verses is that there was a divine preparation that had taken place as Jesus headed into Jerusalem for a final time before his arrest and crucifixion and burial and resurrection. Up to this point in Jesus' earthly ministry, he's really avoided every attempt that people have made to, dr- to try and declare and, and push him to a place of open recognition that he is the Messiah and King. Because as Jesus would say several times in the gospel accounts, his, his hour or his time had not yet come, which makes it clear to us that Jesus was working on a divine timetable. Jesus was so intentional and specific about what he did and when he did it. And and this was especially important 
because of all the prophecies that he had to perfectly fulfill in his first coming. See, if Jesus had only fulfilled some or most, but not all, of the prophecies concerning his first coming, we couldn't really trust him at all. There'd always be this lingering question, well, is he really? Because there's this other thing that the Old Testament prophets spoke of that he didn't do. But Jesus didn't fulfill some or most. He really did fulfill all of the prophecies concerning himself in his first coming. And we see a few of those being fulfilled here on Palm Sunday. Now, Jesus in verse 29 drew near to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, and he sends two of his disciples into a village with really specific and detailed instructions. And I love verse 32 that it tells us, those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. Nothing was out of place or confusing when they went to do what Jesus had said. Instead, everything went exactly as Jesus said that it would. Now, we might look at this whole scene and, and think to ourselves, why a donkey? And I just have to have a moment of honesty here this morning. As the kids were getting ready uh, earlier, I see Henry with the donkey stick thing, donkey head on the stick. And not even thinking, I don't even know where my head was at this morning as we were setting up. And I just said, hey, donkey guy. And the response that I got from someone was, that's Jesus. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Just called him donkey guy. I don't know where that came from. Sorry, Jesus. Sorry. Donkey guy. Jesus is not donkey guy. Neither was Henry. We might look at this whole scene, though, and think, like, why a donkey? And it's interesting that it was going to be a, a, a colt, right? A foal. So an untrained, maybe unridden donkey. It's like the worst potential animal to want to, like, have cooperate with you to do something. I need to get somewhere. Let me take the one that no one's ever ridden, it's not been trained, and I just love it. The thing does exactly what Jesus wants it to do, right? <laughs> Jesus is all over the place. He's not having like a, was a Balaam or Balak moment with like having a. This like many other things, as we consider why a donkey, like other things we see Jesus do and how he operates is, is just totally contrary to how our world does things. And, and that is definitely clearly seen here in Jesus' triumphal entry. There had never been a truer triumphal entry than Jesus's. yet it was the complete opposite of how the Romans in that day would return in triumph. Now, a triumphal entry, if you're not familiar with it, especially within the Roman Empire, a general would go out to battle with his army, and if they won a victory, which they often would, They'd come back in this triumphal procession. The, the general would be riding on a horse-drawn golden chariot, trailed by a procession of prisoners of war, coming into the city, they'd make sacrifices to their false gods. Then a, a great celebration at the arena would take place where the prisoners they had brought with them from the battle 
were made to fight wild beasts as a spectator sport and, and be killed. This was the traditional triumphal entry that everyone in that day would have been accustomed to. So for us, when we hear the term triumphal entry, we have to keep that cultural context in mind here to see that this isn't like any triumphal entry that these people had ever seen before. Imagine the Roman soldiers there in Jerusalem looking on at all of this, wondering where the horses were at, where's the golden chariot, where are the prisoners of war, where are the sacrifices, where is the game? Where's the game at the arena to to hand over all the prisoners to the animals? On top of that, hundreds of thousands of people from all over were in Jerusalem after they had traveled to come to celebrate Passover. So there's this influx of people in Jerusalem at that time and an influx of animals, specifically lambs that had been brought to be sacrificed. And here's Jesus riding a donkey. Jesus, our Passover lamb, who is going to triumph, not by defeating the Romans, but but by giving his life upon a Roman cross, sacrificing himself. Jesus wasn't riding a beast of war. He had no chariot. There was no army. He had no prisoners. He wasn't returning from battle. No, he came humbly, entering in triumph because he was about to triumph at the cross, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. But again, considering this scene here, prophetically, it had to be a cult the foal of a donkey that no one had ever ridden on, that Jesus would ride upon into Jerusalem on this day. This was foretold by God through the prophet Zechariah. Check out what we're told in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. This prophecy of Zechariah's came over 500 years earlier and tells of a scene which would be a sign to the Israelites, a cause for great rejoicing because it meant that their lowly, humble king, And the Jews had not had a king for hundreds of years before this. Their king was coming who is just and has salvation. He'd be coming in on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All of that was a deliberate move by Jesus, knowing full well what this would look like scripturally and prophetically, but doing it Because that prophetic scripture was meant for him alone and for this specific day alone. And these people here recognize this. They would have known this messianic prophecy of Zechariah. They would have known what was going on 
and what this meant for them, although many had a different kind of salvation in mind, not a spiritual salvation, but a physical salvation, deliverance from the Romans. But this is why they're going to react and respond the way that they do in verses 37 and 38. But check out what we're told in Matthew's parallel account of this in Matthew 21, verse 8. We're told there, And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The, the spreading of their clothes on the road and the, the spreading of the palm branches, and we're told specifically in one of the other gospel accounts it was palm branches, Spreading all this on the road where the donkey was walking was all a sign of respect and loyalty and honor. All of it was part of a traditional Jewish reception for royalty, and all of it was a symbol of triumph and success. But, but let's continue on into verses 37 and 38 here in Luke 19. Verse 37, Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The, the divine preparations have led to this great outpouring of praise and rejoicing to God by this multitude. Jesus is now on this colt. He's heading down the west side of the Mount of Olives. I was going to make like a west side reference there, but I don't want a gang war happening this morning in church. We'll just we'll not do that. It's a joke, everyone. Everyone can laugh. It's fine. You're like, it wasn't funny. I would have laughed if it was funny. He's heading down the west side of the Mount of Olives. He's leading into the Kidron Valley to make his way up to Jerusalem. And as he goes down the descent, all these people who had been following him began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. And many of these people had seen Jesus do some really mighty works. They had seen the power of God at work in and through Jesus' life and ministry. Even for some who hadn't been following Jesus very long, I think a perfect example of this would be Bartimaeus, who just a short time before this, Jesus met him on the road and healed him from blindness. Jesus tells him, go your way, after healing him. And Bartimaeus is like, my way is your way, Jesus. Wherever you're going, I'm going too. Bartimaeus is trailing with Jesus after that. But you imagine sort of people on this spectrum of like, maybe some from early on, like as early as Jesus' you know, shortly after Jesus' baptism by John to, you know, the, the most recent being, being Zacchaeus or Bartimaeus, that these people are rejoicing because, man, God has done some mighty works through Jesus. We've seen him raise the dead. We've seen him heal lepers. We've seen him open the eyes of the blind and give back the hearing to the deaf and restore the mute. And I mean, we've seen Jesus do some amazing things. How can we not rejoice? Our king is coming. He's humble. He's, he's just. He, he has salvation. It's clear he's, he's here. And they're just pumped. They couldn't be more excited in this moment, why? Because 
for us, we're looking back and we're looking in, in hindsight at all this, but for them, they're looking before the fact with thousands of years of prophetic and national anticipation regarding their Messiah. You know, we don't really have that. We don't have that sort of dynamic in our day that we can compare it to. For them, they're like, man, we've been waiting since we, were, we read about what, what happened in the garden when, when God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. We've been waiting for the seed, the anointed one, the Messiah to come. And here he is. And he's not silencing us anymore. <laughs> he's not telling us, hey, don't talk about this. It's not time yet. Jesus is just like, yep, it's time. And they're just excited. And they're following Jesus down. They're making their way into the valley. They're coming up into Jerusalem. They're, they're ready for their deliverer to deliver. But oftentimes, don't we want Jesus to deliver in ways where he's like, I, don't, I haven't really promised that kind of deliverance. They're going like, here's our deliverer. He's going to go in and he's just, I mean, he's going to throw Pilate out and he's going to get all the Romans out and he's going to travel over to Rome and he's just going to like crack skulls and take names. And he's like, that's not the kind of, I'm not delivering like that. That's not happening. Everything kind of goes downhill. This hill, this seems like a really like crescendo sort of moment. It just really doesn't, it doesn't go uphill from here for Jesus in the fanfare sort of thing. Because that kind of deliverance didn't happen. Because Jesus is looking to the cross He's not going to look to, to take over a throne in a physical sense there. You think about the disappointment when we think about Easter Sunday and the disciples, you know, it was only the women who came to the tomb, but they, they didn't come expecting Jesus to be risen. We all want a Savior of some kind. Savior in circumstances, Savior in a marriage, Savior in our finances. These people wanted Jesus to be a different kind of Savior. But he was going to save nonetheless. And this whole scene here, as we consider all of the rejoicing, even this is prophetic. Even this is a fulfillment of prophecy. In verse 38, they begin to hail Jesus as their king, as they quote from Psalm chapter 118, which is a messianic psalm. Check out what we're told in Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. It says there, save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes. In the name of the Lord, we have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And then Matthew's parallel account of this in Matthew 21, 9, we're told, Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In their 
praises of Jesus, they were crying out, Hosanna. Hosanna means save we pray or, or save now. This was their shout of praise pointing to Jesus, the Savior, but it was also the cry and prayer of the people's hearts because they were desiring to be saved nationally, politically, situationally, and presently. But, but let's continue on. Verses 39 and 40 say, And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. While there were multitudes of people who were celebrating Jesus as their king, there were also the religious, religious leaders who were criticizing and condemning the people's praise of Jesus. These Pharisees knew exactly what was happening. They knew exactly what the people were doing, and they were not okay with it. They wanted Jesus to silence the praise of his disciples But I love Jesus' response. Look, if these people don't praise me right now, the rocks would do what these people failed to do. If humanity had failed in this moment to praise Jesus, creation itself would have made sure that Jesus received his praise. But these people here, the majority of them, got to be involved in this amazing celebration where they were exalting Jesus openly for the very first time time as their king, and they were used by God here to help fulfill prophecy. The tragic part is that the Pharisees missed out because of the hardness of their own hearts towards Jesus. But let's see what happened as Jesus drew near Jerusalem this final time. Verse 41 through 44, now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation." Understand as we read through all of this, that the triumphal entry of Jesus was not just for the purpose of giving Jesus the praise and worship he was due and finally hailing him as the rightful king. That was part of it, but it also went much deeper than that. Though the crowd was rejoicing, we find here that Jesus was not We find in these verses a very sad, a very sorrowful, a very broken and grieving Jesus, weeping and pleading for the people who he greatly loved, who were missing the significance of what he was doing and who he truly was. Jesus, speaking about what would happen just a little less than 40 years later, says that days were coming when enemies would come and build an embankment, surround them, close them in on every side, level them and their children within them to the ground, not leaving one stone upon another. And this is Jesus actually prophetically speaking about, uh, again, what would happen a little less than 40 years later when 
The Roman general Titus in 70 AD came and besieged the city of Jerusalem and killed over 600,000 Jews and destroyed Jerusalem, completely dismantling their temple. Jesus said if they had just known that these are the things that make for their peace, yet they were blinded to it. There was this aspect of the people understanding certain things about the Messiah's coming but ignoring other things. They understood the prophecy of Zechariah, the Messiah coming in on the foal of the donkey, them crying out, Hosanna, fulfillment of Psalm 118, but they missed or or disregarded other prophecies regarding the Messiah that spoke about him having to suffer and having to die like we find in Psalm 22 and then the latter part of Isaiah 52 and all of Isaiah chapter 53, just to name a few places in Scripture. These were the things that would actually make for their peace, but they missed it. And this brought about a deep sorrow in Jesus that caused him to weep, literally to sob as he saw the city. How do we think about Jesus? You know, there's a lot of people who have all kinds of ideas about Jesus. They think about him. Matt, he was just a, he did really good things. He's a good guy. Good teacher. A philanthropist type, humanitarian. He was an, you know, he said some really profound things. He was really loving. But we do we think about Jesus being a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief? Do we, I don't know if we, I don't know that I think about that often when I think about Jesus. That there was this sort of underlying grief in Jesus' life. He wasn't looking around mad at everybody. Man, like, I can't wait to send you to hell. Like one of those sorts of things. Because I think some people also, their perspective of Jesus is that sort of thing, which is also off. And Jesus is coming in on the, he's not going, Man, like, why aren't you getting it? He's not angry here. He's not slapping the disciples like, you don't even get what's going on right now. You're not going to even realize it until after I rise from the dead. He's broken. Jesus is looking at people and he's broken. He's weeping. He's sobbing. Tears running down Jesus' face as he looks out and he's just going, man, I want to save you, but you won't come to me. I've done everything possible to gain your belief, to gain your trust. But your pride is keeping you blinded, and he's just, he's broken inwardly. This is our Jesus. This is our Jesus. And as we approach the world around us, If we're going to be people who are like Jesus, then how are we going to exclude this peace of Jesus? The broken over sinful humanity, Jesus. The weeping over people's pride, Jesus. Guys, we need to gain the heart of Jesus now more than ever. The real heart of Jesus that we see in Scripture. Not the Jesus the part of Jesus that we want to take and be like. The full Jesus, the real biblical 
Jesus. Amen? But I want to point out in this section of verses that when Jesus in verse 42 says, this your day, and then later in verse 44 says, the time of your visitation, Jesus is referring to what's known as the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. I want to show you the message that the angel Gabriel brought to Daniel over 500 years before Jesus came. In Daniel 9, verses 24 through the first part of verse 26, Gabriel brings this message to Daniel. He says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there should be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. In the beginning of this prophecy, in verse 24, we're given a really broad prophetic timeline. Seventy total weeks. These weeks are not speaking of a literal seven-day period, but of a seven-year period. We're seeing a timeline dealing with things that would happen from the command to go and build Jerusalem, which we actually saw a few months ago in our studies of Nehemiah chapter 2, but then looking forward all the way to the millennial reign. But just in regards to Jesus' triumphal entry, we're going to hone in on just a specific part of this prophecy. See, from the command to restore and build Jerusalem and tell Messiah the Prince, the angel Gabriel there bringing this message from God, says there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and that after the seven weeks and 62 weeks take place, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Again, these weeks are speaking of a seven year period we think about that 69 plus or 62 plus 7 is 69 69 seven year periods is 483 years the command to restore and build Jerusalem which is known historically was given by king Artaxerxes to Nehemiah on March 14th 445 BC I didn't come up with these numbers, okay, that I'm about to give you. Someone very smart did. 483 years later, or exactly 173,880 days later, according to the Gregorian calendar which the Jews used, which was based on a 360-day year, brings us to Messiah the Prince on April 6th, 32 A.D., which is when Jesus was hailed openly as the Messiah as he rode in on a donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which was less than a week before he would be crucified, or as Daniel's prophecy said, the Messiah would be cut off or executed. I don't know about you, but these things just are incredibly faith-building. Like 500 years earlier, this message is given... And to the day these things are fulfilled, the Messiah would be cut off. He would be killed, but not for himself. He didn't die for his benefit. He died for ours. 
And to the exact day, it was fulfilled just as God told us it would ahead of time in his word. This just reminds us how infinitely wise and all-knowing and great our God is. No one else predicts future events like our God does in his word. The reason about one quarter of the Bible is prophetic in nature is so that we will believe and take God at his word. These Pharisees prided themselves in knowing the word of God, and yet they missed it. If they could have looked past all their religiosity, if they could have looked past all of their envy and resentment of Jesus, they would have seen that Jesus indeed was the Messiah they had been waiting for, seeing that all the prophecy clearly pointed to Jesus, and yet they missed it. This was their day, the things that would make for their peace the time of their visitation, but their pride kept them from believing in Jesus. And this was why Jesus was weeping. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, wanted to bring people into relationship with the Father, that they would make peace with God. But that peace can only come through receiving Jesus' free gift of salvation, which he was about to provide through his death on the cross. Now, while verses 45 and 46 of Luke chapter, chapter 19 might seem to be a continuation of that account of Jesus' triumphal entry, we know from Mark's gospel account that what actually takes place in those verses happens the next day on Monday of Holy Week. And so with that, leave your place in Luke and turn with me to John chapter 12, just one book to the right. John chapter 12. See, after Jesus came into Jerusalem and the people praised him as their long-awaited king, there's a bit more we know of what happened on Palm Sunday after Jesus rode in on this donkey. And we find this in John and Mark's gospel records. First, we're told in John chapter 12, verses 16 through 19, his disciples, verse 16, did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. As Jesus finally made his way into Jerusalem, we see at least three different groups of people present who had three different sorts of responses to his triumphal entry. In verse 16, we see the disciples, the first group, who just enjoyed all that was taking place, but they just they didn't really understand what was going on. It was like, you know, you see something that happens and you get really excited about it, but then afterwards you're like, what, what was going on there? What was that about? That was Jesus' disciples here. Yeah! Hosanna! And then they're like, wait, so what was, what was that? What did he do? Then in verses 17 and 18, we see a second group. This was those who had been present when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. These people had told others about Jesus. They bore witness to Jesus. And so, because of that, others gathered together too. But their response was really just one of curiosity because of the sign that Jesus had performed 
in raising Lazarus from the dead. And then in verse 19, we see a third group, and that was the Pharisees. And, and their response was one of irritation and frustration and anger. The Pharisees had already called to Jesus from the crowd, as we saw in Luke 19. They told him to rebuke his disciples as he was riding in, and everyone was rejoicing and singing that messianic psalm. But now in this passage, they're just talking among themselves, and what they said here is interesting. First, in verse 19, they said to each other, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. So they were feeling defeated, unable to do anything to stop the crowd from hailing Jesus as their Messiah. And really, they were completely unable because God had foreordained this day. He had foreordained for his son to come into Jerusalem in this way and for the crowd to respond in this way. And no person, no being was going to thwart the plan of God to allow mankind to recognize Jesus as Messiah on this specific day. But then second, notice that they said to each other, look, the world has gone after him. Even though this was an emotional sort of response and an exaggeration because they were frustrated and angry and irritated, it was also prophetic in a sense. Though it was an exaggeration because not everyone present was even truly following Jesus and some were likely present later in the week yelling crucify him. What these Pharisees said is the desire of God for humanity. That the world would go after Jesus, would follow Jesus, would put their faith in Jesus for salvation. But, but the final scene of that Palm Sunday is actually seen in Mark chapter 11. Uh, we'll put it up on the screen, but Mark 11, verse 11, it says, And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So after coming into Jerusalem, Jesus goes into the temple. He, he surveys what was going on in there, the corruption that had taken place the way that God's house of prayer had been made into a den of thieves. But with it being so late in the day, he, he leaves, goes back to the town of Bethany, which is where uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived and, and went back there with his 12 disciples. But what, we know that what Jesus saw at the temple really stuck with him, that he had a righteous anger about what was going on at the temple of God and that the next day, Monday, of Holy Week, he would drive out the merchants and clean house, being driven by a deep longing to see the house of God be a, house, a place, a house of, of prayer where the nations would come and seek God, would know him personally, would commune with him through prayer, and, and would worship him. And, and while Jesus received praise from a crowd of people this day, in his triumphal entry, in just a matter of days, as we'll look at Good Friday, there's going to be a very different crowd around Jesus, not shouting his praise and glorifying God because of him, but shouting for him to be crucified, rejecting him as their king and Messiah, and ultimately crucifying, murdering the Son of God. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus knew what the outcome would be of all this, 
and he came into Jerusalem on the donkey, and he allowed people to openly hail him as the Messiah and King anyways. He did it anyways. He knew his triumphal entry would be a seemingly great start, but that it would end tragically for him, and yet he did it anyways because he had this intense, unwavering desire to save you and me. And I, I pray that all of this just draws us to a place of greater faith, a greater trust in Jesus, and greater worship of our humble Messiah and King who weeps over humanity and loves us incredibly. I'm going to have the worship team come back up. In closing, I want to ask us this morning, what's our reaction, what's our perspective as we look to Jesus? Is it worship and rejoicing because he's our Messiah, our King, our Lord, our God, who has triumphed over death and given us life? Or maybe is it interest, curiosity about who Jesus is? Maybe you're unsure, but you're seeking truth. I would encourage you this morning, open your heart to, to Jesus, surrender to him. Maybe you're in a place like the Pharisees where even when faced with all of these facts, all of these prophetic truths that point to the truth of who Jesus is, you're still rejecting him in your heart, unwilling to turn to him because of your own pride. I would encourage you this morning to humble yourself before Jesus and surrender to him. Look, all of these things just remind us, again, we might want Jesus to be a different kind of savior. Jesus, I want, to, I want you to save me in my circumstances right now. Jesus, I'm going through some hard stuff. I just need you to save me in this. But, but the hardest part is the kind of surrender that's required. Because we can ask Jesus to save us in certain ways, but not actually humble ourselves before him, not actually surrender our lives to him where he's the Lord of our lives. We want him to be Lord in a moment, maybe. Be Lord right now. But tomorrow, I want to go back to being me. The kind of salvation that Jesus came to provide is the one that you and I need the most. It's the one that matters most. Because it deals with our soul. It deals with that part of us that's going to live forever in one of two places either separated from God for all eternity in hell, that's not where he wants us. Or in heaven with him for all eternity in the presence of Jesus and all the holy angels, that's his desire for you and for me. And even this morning that he would look out upon us and, and know where our heart is, is. Our heart is, is. Heart is at. Knowing those areas even that we have pride and that we've resisted, Jesus at times, and his arms are still open to us. He just wants us. So would we respond to him this morning? Lord God, we thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you for coming in on that donkey on Palm Sunday. Thank you, Jesus, for showing the heart of God to us in how you wept 
longing, Lord, to bring people in. But Lord, you don't exert your force upon us. You don't override the free will that you've given us. You want us to come to you. You want us to want you, to love you. This morning, Lord, I pray for us, Lord. I don't know where each is at. Maybe every person in this room, Lord, we're, we're in that first group where we're just, man, we're rejoicing, we're, we're worshiping because we, we know you, Lord. We've received your salvation. We love you. And that's awesome. But Lord, maybe there's some others where may, maybe they, they're just curious. They don't fully know what they think about you yet. Maybe even some others, Lord, who are just are skeptical. They're doubting. God, help them to know that you don't cast them away in their doubt. Lord, you want to meet them there. God, you want to meet them in that place, God, where even, even maybe for some, maybe they're just their hearts are hard towards you. Lord, you don't cast us away because of pride. You weep over us because of pride. And so, Lord, for those this morning, God, who, are, who don't know you personally, who've never received your salvation in their own lives, never had their, that confidence to know that their sins have been forgiven and removed as far as the east is from the west, don't know what it's like to live a life where our, our guilt has been washed away because of the blood of Christ where we've been made new creations in Christ Jesus. Lord, if there's anybody here today, and, and that's them, and, and this morning they just, they need to open their heart to you. And Jesus, you're calling out to them even now. I just encourage you, if that's you this morning, would you raise your hand if that's anybody here and you want to make a decision today to say, I want Jesus. In my life, I want Jesus to save me. You don't have to have perfect faith. He just wants your faith. He just wants your trust. He wants you to look to him to be saved this morning. Is that anybody that I can pray for you? Lord, this morning, God, you know where each is at. And if there is anybody, Lord, they just felt a little timid. Maybe they're just not at a place where they're ready to, to surrender. God, keep working. Keep speaking, Lord. Keep pursuing after their hearts. Those who wanted to raise a hand but didn't, Lord, that in their own hearts they would just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And Jesus, would you save me, forgive me, cleanse me? Would you make me a new creation in Christ Jesus? Would you seal me with the Holy Spirit of God? Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. Jesus, I believe that you rose from the grave. And Jesus, I, I humble myself. I repent of my sin today. And I turn to you in faith. I just encourage you, if you've done that, the Bible says you will be saved. The Lord, as we sing these songs of praise now, as we take the communion elements, as, 
Maybe some go to the corner of the room to receive prayer. God, continue to have your way. Lord, would we live with that expectation of your soon return? Lord, would you give us boldness in these days? Would you give us your heart of compassion for the lost? Lord, that we would be even more prayerful and compassionate. Lord, that Jesus, we would reflect you in a world that just needs you desperately. And so, Father, we thank you, we praise you, we worship you. We worship our living, risen King Jesus, even prior to Easter Sunday. Jesus, thank you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.